Hi, everyone. This is Denise Brown, your host of Your Caregiving Journey, a talk show that helps you as you help family members and friends. Our show is part of the Caregiving Podcast Network, which features podcasters sharing caregiving stories, caregiving insights, and caregiving inspirations. I just want to mention that our Caregiving Podcast Network had a meeting last night, and we are working on our next special month-long series. What we're going to do in July are, are produce short podcasts that we're calling Caregiving Escapes. So through our short podcasts, we're going to take you away every day during the month of July. And I'll share more details about that on caregiving.com. Today I announced the winners of our Virtual Caregiving Summit contest. Every day for 11 days, we posted video chats with the presenters from our third annual National Caregiving Conference. And we awarded a grand prize and eight runner-up prizes. And our grand prize winner won airfare to Chicago, two-night stay at our conference hotel, and free registration to our conference. If you were participating in our contest, you'll want to check caregiving.com and your email to see if you won. Thanks to those who joined us during our contest. And thanks to our presenters from our conference who created really compelling videos. It's just a nice preview of what you'll experience in November for our third annual National Caregiving Conference. If you can't make it to Chicago, no worries. We will live broadcast two days of our conference. So you can watch sessions on November 9th and November 10th. We should be opening registration in early June. I'll keep you posted. The live broadcast is free. We will ask you to register for that, though, so that we can get you in the right place at the right time on November 9th and 10th online. And we want to share updates with you as well. Okay, I think that's it. I think that's it for the updates. So joining me this morning, as he does every last Friday of the month, is Warren Abair. He is an alumnus of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation's Executive Nurse Fellows Program. He's Chief Innovation Officer for a Home Health Analytics Company, and he's also a family caregiver. He cared for his parents, and he now currently cares for his daughter. And I'm going to bring on Warren in just a few moments. I apologize. I'm having one little technical glitch and it is causing another technical glitch, so I'm just going to keep talking as I play with our studio. I just want to mention that Warren and I have started our program because we really think it's important to think about what are the conversations about a caregiving experience that we'd like to have? What's missing when we think about what the conversations are like right now about a caregiving experience? Okay, I fixed our little technical glitch. So welcome, Warren. Good morning. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Good morning, Denise. Happy Friday and happy Memorial Day weekend. Yes, happy Friday. Happy Friday. So today's conversation actually was inspired last month during our monthly podcast. And we started talking about talking points. What are the words that we can use during a difficult situation? And when we think about a caregiving experience, we encounter difficult situations within our family systems, within the healthcare system. So I thought it would be interesting to think about what are the words that we can use 
during family conversations and then during conversations we have within the healthcare system. Okay, so let's start with the family. And when I think about my family, we have had some heated conversations about caregiving situations. And when I look back, I think, oh boy, you know, why was I the boiling pot? I really should have just put it on simmer and let it go instead of engaging with the drama. For you, Warren, when you think about conversations within your family about caregiving experiences, what conversations come to mind that went really well that you think, oh, we handled that great? Denise, when we were caring for my dad who had dementia for seven years, um, as his condition was deteriorating, we recognized it was important for us to sit as a family uh, while Dad was still able to be part of the conversation. And um, what what went well for us during that family meeting was the opportunity for us to all press those areas that we had concerns about. And uh, I recall that it was a, you know, I would say even though Dad was in the, in the throes of dementia, it was a, a joyful experience for us because Dad was still able to participate in the conversation. Um, he knew that he was the patriarch of uh, the 10 of us. I'm the oldest of 10. Uh, and that he was still in charge of the family. And even though the comments that he made uh, were not part of the conversation we were having, we all gave dad that opportunity to share what he wanted to say, because we recognized that he was our father. We needed to treat him with dignity and respect that any conversation we should have at that time was going to be respecting his desire to be in control of the situation. More importantly, my mom's desire since she was making decisions for him at that point. So, so I think the conversation went well because we were thinking about them. We were thinking about treating them with dignity and with love and with respect. And, and in the midst of a challenging time, there was, there was warmth and concern and compassion. Uh, and, and to me, that was why our conversation went well. So what, what's so interesting to hear you talk about that conversation is the answer to a question I was thinking as you were talking, which is oftentimes our emotions can get the best of us. And so during tough conversations, difficult situations where we have to communicate, it can be that our emotions drive what we say. And if we keep our eye on the goal, which is what's best for our carry, what's our carry's wishes, it can provide some distance between what we say and what we feel. You know, the other part of this, too, is I've been thinking about the difficult conversations we've had in my family. They've occurred during really stressful times where I wasn't sleeping a lot. I wasn't eating as well as I wanted to. I was run down, worried, almost feeling defeated. And I didn't have the reserves within myself to hold back and be calm during conversations. And it speaks to how, gosh, it's hard to take care of ourselves during the really difficult, stressful periods of time. And yet it speaks to how we can really do better during the difficult conversations if we feel like, okay, 
I'm, I'm as best as I can be right now because I gave myself a little time off last night, and so I got to sleep. So, Denise, the, 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 there's good science behind this conversation, but also um, wisdom traditions that, that bring a lot of this to light. And I'll start there. Um, I'm not an expert in Buddhism, but led a, a group of healthcare workers um, to Dharamsala, India, and Tibetan Buddhist communities uh, back in 2014. And one of the things that we learned from, from Buddhist beliefs, and the, their experts who will be listening to this who know that I'm not going to be saying it exactly right, but the Buddhists recognize that there is going to be suffering in life. And, um, you know, while we, we certainly don't want to talk of family caregiving only as suffering, the reality is, is there are difficult times. The Buddhists believe that suffering is present in any life, but the degree of pain, the amount of pain is almost optional. Because you talked uh, about bringing drama. Yeah, you talked about mm. the drama that we bring to a situation. Um, you talked about the fact that when we're tired, when we're hungry, when we're thirsty, when we're in pain, essentially those are times when we're not our best selves. And, and when we find ourselves in any situation when we're having those issues, then it's likely that, that we will not have our best self present in that situation. Uh, so, so one of the challenges, and we talk a lot, in healthcare these days, more and more about mindfulness and about meditation. And if we're doing, quote, our work, end quote, then we're going to be able to be more objective, but we're also going to be able to be more self-aware. So when the time comes for us to have one of these difficult conversations and, and we're looking for the right words to use and, and looking to be diplomatic instead of confrontational, <clears throat> our ability to, to be self-aware and to sense what's going on around our emotions. Uh, you know, am I, am I sensing my heart rate rise? Am I uh, sensing that my, my breathing is getting more rapid? Uh, can I feel myself perhaps even beginning to feel anger? Uh, if you sense all of those things and you're so, quote, uh, sort of doing your work around the mindfulness, then you can redirect and not be reacting. You can instead be sort of, of proactive in the way that you're, approaching the conversation in the way that you're managing to stay silent rather than share a strong feeling that might disrupt the direction that things are going in. Uh, so, so it's really interesting. And, you know, I'll, I'll add that, um, you know, some of the good science around this, uh, a book that I'm in the middle of right now is called Conversational Intelligence. Uh, the author is a Ph.D., Judith Glaser, G-L-A-S-E-R. And Judith talks a great deal about the words that we use and um, e even the anatomy. You know, the, the, the amygdala is a part of the brain where there's fight or flight. And within a matter of a few seconds, you can determine whether the amygdala is going to light up or whether the prefrontal cortex is going to light up. That's the part of the brain that says, oh, I can trust this person. And there's maybe an opportunity for collaboration. So, so let's, let's dig this a little bit deeper and see where we can go with it. Whereas the, the fight or flight part, the amygdala, the limbic brain, is where we feel threatened. We feel that, you know, maybe somebody's going to try to take advantage of us or, or that somebody might be trying to harm us in some way. So as a family caregiver, this is really important, not only in our discussions within the family, but it's important in our engagement of healthcare professionals. And the reason for that is because we as healthcare professionals frequently almost always ignore the family caregiver. And worse than that, 
Scandinavian studies show that we as health professionals actually think in a hierarchical manner. Patient and their family are down toward the bottom of the hierarchy uh, with the family member being even lower. And we hear it all the time in healthcare professionals is that oftentimes they feel like the family gets in the way of that healthcare professional's work. So just that mindset is something that certainly leads us back to this important conversation that you brought up today, and that is, you know, how do we go about building those relationships? How do we go about uh, building a trusting uh, conversation with someone who is either another family member who's involved in the uh, family caregiving with us or someone who's a healthcare professional? Okay, so there was a lot of great stuff there. So one of the things that came up for me, first of all, is our best selves is this year's conference theme. So I love that we're talking about this. The other thing that came up is I thought, gosh, you know what? We often don't give ourselves permission to schedule difficult conversations. What I mean about that is we just think, okay, this is spur of the moment. I just have to be available. But what if we thought about a conversation happening when we are our best selves? And I thought, I'm better after I take a walk or swim laps. If I have to have a conversation with someone, it probably would be a good idea for me to take a walk and then have the conversation. And I think about in the hospital setting, depending on the hospital, they often have grounds that you can walk, or at least you can walk around the hospital. If I know I'm going to have a difficult conversation around a decision or a concern about treatment, I took a walk, I probably would be in a better state of mind to have that conversation. And the other part I love about this is, are we creating threat or trust? And are we feeling threatened or that we can trust? When we think about a conversation with a healthcare professional, I'm wondering, Warren, what tips can help us so that we, we move up the hierarchy so that the healthcare professional views us as a trusted partner rather than a threat, which is wasted time. We're not going to waste their time. We're actually going to make their time useful. What do you think? You bring up some really good points. I think the first is being able to schedule a time. Um, and, And that's a little bit difficult if you're in a hospital setting because the doctor's going to show up for rounds when he shows up and even the nurses during the day. Um, so, so to actually almost have a script, um, if, if you're in a, a, a good place, um, either on a walk or after swimming laps, or, you know, perhaps you've just done your, your uh, mindfulness meditation, if that's part of your routine, that's maybe a good time to make some notes. And generally, when I'm communicating with someone, I, I, I don't put a script together. But I put bullet points, and generally I have words that I want to use. And this book that I mentioned earlier, Conversational Intelligence by Judith Glazer, she, she actually points out studies that certain words make a difference with regards to what the recipient, that person who's listening, hears. And that, that'll probably be a conversation for another call. But the, the fact that you can essentially have bullet points related to what you want to do in the conversation, and there are levels of conversation. Some of these times we're just 
meeting someone and, and beginning to build that, that, that first impression in the first few sentences. Um, and, then, and then you're at a point where you're exchanging information later. So if you're going to put these bullets together on the front end, meet and build trust. The next item down is to share information and ask. And then if you get to that third level that Dr. Glaser talks about, then you're exchanging information, you're sharing, you're discovering, and, and the term that she uses is co-creating. So as we look to how we might be better with those difficult conversations within the family or with other healthcare workers, to plan it in advance, even if you can't name the exact moment into the hospital room at any time on that morning or afternoon, to have it planned in advance so that you know what you're going to say and how you're going to go about taking those steps to build a more trusting relationship. Easy to talk about from a theoretical perspective. Uh, the challenge is putting it into practice, and it's almost like you need to role play this in advance so that you'll be mm-hmm. ready. Yeah, and I think about what I get hung up on, which is winning. <laughs> so I am going to win this argument, darn it, no matter what it takes. And if my voice has to get louder, I'm going to win. And if I can reframe what win is, it's not about being right. It's about achieving a goal or coming to consensus or receiving more information. Then that, that resonates me. with. Yeah, that resonates with me. And I think that's another vital sign you can kind of look at is heart rate, you know, your, your, your blood pressure going up, you feel anger, you feel respiratory. Well, you can also find out whether that that you're beginning to feel that desire to win and i would offer that you could reframe that into win win because mm-hmm. yeah it's there not you about go. just us as not just about us as a family caregiver winning but the the person we're caring for is going to win if we're better at this difficult conversation and not only are they going to win but hopefully the provider the healthcare provider is going to win as well so, yeah. so reframing your desire to win and your desire to be right um, and, and the fact that your voice is, is raising is a symptom and a sign of something that's going on deeper. Um, again, you know, easy to talk about, to actually practice it um, is something that you've, you've got to do it a few times to, to be better at it. The other trap for me is trying to point out who the bad guy is. (laughs) I think about this within my family system. I have an older sister who's out of the picture. And when she was moving out of the picture, I wanted, I guess this is a version of being right, is I I wanted people to see that she was being wrong. And that really took me down a detour. And so what I've had to let go of is that it's not up, for, up to me to prove that someone is wrong to others. It's only up for me to share what I, what I believe are important values or priorities or steps and not worry about making sure everybody knows who the bad guy is. Oh, my gosh. Once I let go of that, it just was so much easier. And the reality is people read dynamics. They know what's going on. We don't necessarily always have to show what the dynamic is or talk about it because the dynamic shows itself. If we stay true to who we are, that's the win. Oh, gosh, that really was a huge light bulb moment for me. 
So conversation for another time will be the perspective of othering, which is essentially what oh, you just described. Yes, othering yes. Ver- versus yes. wanting, O-N-E-I-N-G. And next time we talk, we can we can talk about the uh, origin of those two things and and how it helps us to to better understand the way that we think. I want to mention an experience I had in the hospital with my mom that really put me over the edge. My mom had been in the hospital for a series of weeks. She was admitted because of an internal bleed. They couldn't stop the internal bleed, so she had surgery to remove a third of her stomach. We thought, oh, great, this is the end of it. Then she started another one. And what what happened is she would be in ICU and then moved to a regular room. And then a bleed would start, and then she'd be moved from a regular room back to ICU. So she was moving within the same hospital, but every time she moved, it was like a new admission. And after we had been through a couple of these, it was so frustrating to me that the third time she moved back to ICU, we had a young doctor. I, you know what? I shouldn't label young or old. We had a doctor who came in and basically went through all these questions that would happen if my mom had been brought from the house to the emergency room. And the questions were, what brings you to the hospital? What's going on? And I was out of my mind because <laughs> I thought, why are we going through this? And this particular doctor was very condescending to my mom and had come in with the idea that my mom had a cognitive impairment and needed to be talked to slowly and with simple words. Well, my my mom was in a fight mode at that point. She was fighting for her life. So this idea that this young doctor was going to talk talk to her in this very condescending manner was difficult for my mom and difficult to witness. And what I finally did is I just left the room. I just left the room because I thought, oh my gosh, I am not helping this situation because I'm getting so angry. And it really speaks to what you talked about at the beginning of the show, which is where we fall on the hierarchy. So it was my mom, and then it was us below my mom. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering, thinking back to that situation, <clears throat> what could have changed it? Was there anything I could have said? Because I did say, you understand that she's been in this hospital for three weeks. This is her third time coming down to the ICU. She just moved floors. She didn't come from the house. I kept saying, you understand, she's not coming from the house to your emergency room. She's been in this hospital. And it didn't matter. The doctor kept saying, we have to go through this. This is protocol. This is standard procedure. Was there something I could have done differently? Denise, I think building a relationship and building trust uh, happens in the first few minutes. Um, Oh, yeah. I've been been told that I I do that well and... Uh, one of the things that I do on the front end of any conversation is to ask the question, where did you grow up? Uh, it changes somebody's mindset when they think about their childhood, when they think about their hometown. Um, and, and at some point early in the conversation, I would, all, I, I would offer uh, a word or two about the experience as the caregiver and how much concern there is, and maybe even ask the question, you know, have, have you had one of your grandparents or someone else that you love uh, in a situation like this. And, and essentially the intent would be not to be threatening in the way that we ask those questions, but to find some common ground. Uh, there, again, there's lots of good science around this and some of the steps and some of the words that you might use 
And um, like I said, perhaps perhaps next time we talk, we can get a little deeper into some of those things and some of the cues, um, some things around body language, facial expressions, that sort of thing. Uh, relationship-centered care is something that was studied back in the mid-'90s by the Pew Fetzer Foundation that eventually evolved into uh, relationship-based uh, care. Relationship-centered care was the earlier thing, and he's, all of that looked at relationships. So this is a good question that you're asking. Yeah, and I guess when I think back, I did ask the doctor, why are we going through this again? When she said it's standard procedure, she was not going to stop. She was going to follow the procedure. And when I realized that, that's when I stepped out of the room because I thought, well, I'm going to delay this because I'm getting so aggravated and upset that we are going through this rather than addressing the true concern. And that was that my mom was bleeding again and it seemed like she was going to die. And I wonder if the doctor could have understood what our true concern was. Because from my perspective, she was wasting our time. And she was the obstacle between immediate help for my mom and delayed help for my mom. And from her perspective, you were slowing her down. Yes. From the doctor's perspective, the fact that (laughs) you were asking questions meant that you were keeping her from getting her checklist done. And um, so so, so I think part of the the answer to this, this dilemma in bringing our best self that situation is even in the most difficult experiences is trying to, to understand what that other person's objectives are too. But I can tell you that in healthcare, we're all about what our objectives are and what our outcomes need to be. And we're not concerned about what's important to the patient and the family in most cases. Uh, and and my, my healthcare friends that are listening to this may or may not agree, but, but my perception is that we've been talking about patient-centered care to the point that we're blue in the face and care is no more patient centered today than it was back then. Um, I I joke that, you know, as long, as long as the physician's parking spot is right next to the door and the patient, the family have to be shuttled in from a half mile away in a parking lot, we're still not patient centered in the way that we approach care. Yeah. And I guess maybe it is important to think about that doctor's age. She was young you would have thought that there would have been exposure to this patient-centered care, and there wasn't. It was clear that she was following the protocols, which were about her checklist. So things had to change. Yeah, and, and the reality is that these are simple conversations. The answers and the issues are more complex. Uh, there are cultural issues that we deal with. There are generational issues that are going to impact this. Um, so I think the challenge that we have as family caregivers and people who aspire to make that experience better for people who are doing what we do as caregivers, the, the challenge we've got is to, to be good at coming up with ways to help people be more effective and efficient. Um, and as I said earlier, you know, maybe not scripted, but knowing our bullet points that we want to discuss, knowing what steps we take to build trust in relationship in those first few seconds of a visit that then allow us to get to a point where we're doing a better job of exchanging information and then to evolve to that third level that Dr. Judith Glazer talks about in conversational intelligence. And that is to exchange energy and sort of co-create the conversation and the experience for the patient and the family in a way that helps to move you to a place where the best 
selves of, of everybody there can be can be present. Yeah, and I think about some of the words that often are exchanged in the healthcare system. Oftentimes, our caries are called "hun," or huh, I'm trying to. Th- that's the big one that gets me. I think, oh my gosh, my mom is not your hun. <laughs> that is not right. a word that my mom is going to respond to, and it happens. It happens all the time, and I wonder where those words came from, so, and why so they're the still thing- used. Yeah, I really think that from the perspective of the, the professional caregiver again, uh, they may feel like that is a good thing for them to be moving beyond the cold professional relationship. Um, and, and one of the things that we get very, very little training on, very little education in our formal healthcare um, universities, schools of medicine, nursing, social work, et cetera, maybe social work gets more of this, and that is, the relationship and that is the soft stuff what we refer to as emotional intelligence um so so this person using the word hun or or dear or sweetheart or something like that uh, essentially maybe maybe making an effort to try to soften the conversation and to build a degree of intimacy that really moves us in the direction of the best interactions. Uh, you and I both know that, that that is sort of an artificial way to do it. Um, and using those words may be seen as, as derogatory almost. Um, yeah. But, but, but that yeah. would be an indication to me that perhaps that that healthcare professional is, is making an effort to move in a direction of a, a deeper relationship. Um, obviously that, you know, again, we go back to generational and cultural issues we also look at years of experience, as you pointed out, this young woman was a very young woman. And um, so as a result, the place that she was in her practice was that of novice. And yeah. novices are going to be paying more attention to their checklists and yeah. um, that, than, than to trust their heart and trust their gut because she's got to develop those skills and competencies. And But before she can sense when something is going in a direction that's not the best direction. Right. Well, it's so interesting because I started thinking about who the other doctors we encountered during this particular hospital admission and her surgeon, who when we first saw, we thought, oh, my gosh, he's so old. (laughs) Can we trust him? And he was the one that had the best bedside manner. And he was the one that just had conversations with us. He never had a checklist. He always sat down, and there was a period of time where it seemed like they were not going to be able to stop my mom's bleeding. And the the surgeon had a very honest conversation with my dad and I, and he said, I'm doing everything I can. I've been performing these kinds of surgeries and have seen these kinds of situations for decades. I'm unsure why this is such a, a problem here and why we can't stop it. And here's what I suggest we do. And that conversation that my dad and I had with him was so honest and so it was it was emotional and heartfelt and we trusted him and it just goes back to what we've been talking about today because he was so direct with us in a really honest way. And I remember sitting with my dad in the waiting room having this conversation with the doctor 
the doctor left and my dad and I looked to each other and we said, okay, we trust him. And that's, that's what happened. We trusted him. My mom, my mom had the surgery and it stopped the bleeding. But it's just interesting. He didn't bring a checklist in. He just brought in, hey, this is what I, this is my experience. This is what I'm seeing. I'm doing what I can. I want to do this. I want to, I want to help your mom. It was very powerful when I think back on that. So while we can't teach love and we can't, can't teach compassion, we can teach loving and compassionate behaviors. And in this particular case, this older physician, his bedside manner was one that developed a deeper confidence in you um, and, and your family. You had more trust in him. And from a standpoint of the uh, experience around knowledge and his actual concrete steps he was going to be taking, you and your family were in a position that you felt that you were going to trust this guy because he had earned your confidence. Uh, As caregivers to my daughter, Brooke, we had the experience with teachers over the years that that Mm. there were some who were very proficient from the standpoint of the nuts and bolts, but yet uh, their love, their concern, their appreciation for who our daughter was as a person was significantly lacking. We learned quickly that we could overlook a lot of the practical nuts and bolts things of a teacher's competence if we knew that they loved and cared about our daughter and wanted her best Mm. interest. Yeah. I can't think of a better way to end the show. Oh boy, Warren, this was fun. This really opened up my eyes in a couple of different ways. So I appreciate it very much. I just want to mention that Warren joins me on the, on the last Friday of every month for crucial, crucial caregiving conversations. That's the title of our podcast and it always fits. And Warren, for, our listeners who'd like to be in touch with you, you have your own podcast. How can people listen to your radio show? When does it air? If, if one were to just do a web search for um, family caregiving with Warren Hebert, and that last name is spelled Hebert, H-E-B-E-R-T, family caregiving with Warren Hebert, it'll take you to the website for radiomaria.us. And there are archives of 10 years of programs that we've done. So I appreciate you asking. And, uh, you know, another way people could connect with me would be uh, my email, uh, which is W-P-H-E-B-E-R-T at loino.edu. Um, W-P-H-E-B-E-R-T at loino.edu. That's my address at Loyola University in New Orleans, where I'm on faculty in the School of Nursing. Have a wonderful holiday weekend, Warren. Thank you again so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks, everybody, so much for listening. I'm Denise Brown. Be sure to stop by caregiving.com. Let us know how you're doing because we always love to know. Take care. Bye-bye.